Lecture 20, How Stress and Emotion Affect Learning. Do you remember what you were doing when you first heard about the 9-11 terrorist attacks on the Twin Towers in New York? I do. I was in the psychology auditorium in East Hall at the University of Michigan, and I was giving a lecture to about 300 students in my Introduction to Cognitive Psychology class. A female student I didn't know walked into the auditorium and she said that she needed to make an announcement to the class. Now, normally, I'd be reluctant to give the microphone to a random student, but she was so adamant that I decided to let her make her announcement. And 30 seconds later, we were all in shock. The next minute, my department chair walked in and announced that classes were canceled and that students could take the rest of the day off. I immediately called my wife and told her to turn on the TV, and then I drove home to be with her and my kids. And like most of the country, we watched the tragedy unfold over the next few hours on national television. My memory for that morning is so vivid that it feels like it was yesterday. But of course, it happened in 2001. And I'm obviously not alone. I suspect that many of you also remember exactly where you were and what you were doing when you heard that terrible news. So, why do so many people have such a powerful memory of that day? Psychologists refer to such vivid memories of traumatic or emotional events as flashbulb memories, and we all have them. For many people, their memory of the 9-11 attacks are a good example. Like me, they vividly remember where they were, who they were with, what they were doing, and lots of other contextual details. Many older people have a flashbulb memory of the JFK assassination. Others have a flashbulb memory of the Space Shuttle Challenger disaster. And it's not just public events. If you were ever a victim of a crime, like a mugging, you may have a flashbulb memory of the event. Or maybe it's the memory of when someone close to you died unexpectedly. Or your first kiss. Or getting your first job. The point is that the memory is much more vivid than other memories from the same time period. They're usually associated with surprising information that's very emotionally arousing and consequential. And that raises a very interesting question. How are learning and memory affected by how we feel? Do we learn better when we're stressed or emotionally aroused, as flashbulb memories seem to suggest? Or are there situations in which too much stress can impair learning? And exactly how do our feelings affect our learning and memory? Do we engage different cognitive mechanisms when we encounter high stress information? Or do the standard mechanisms just work in overdrive? And what's going on in the brain and the body that might explain the effects of stress and emotion on memory? Are there specific brain regions or hormones that play a special role for emotional memories that aren't as important for non-emotional memories? Those are the kinds of questions I want to address in this lecture. And let's begin with the question of whether we learn better when we're emotionally aroused. 
Now, first of all, there's no doubt that our memories for emotionally arousing events tend to be more vivid than our memories for more neutral events. For example, Margaret Bradley, Peter Lang, and their colleagues at the University of Florida recruited nearly 90 undergraduates, and they asked them to rate pictures based on how emotionally arousing they were and how pleasant they were. Immediately afterwards, they asked the participants to describe as many pictures as they could remember. And they also called them up a year later, and they asked them to do the same thing again. And on both tests, participants remembered significantly more of the pictures that they rated as emotionally arousing. There's also evidence that the effect of emotion on memory actually gets stronger over time. My colleague Steve Kaplan at the University of Michigan demonstrated this effect as early as the 1960s. He and a student named Lewis Kleinsmith asked about 50 Michigan undergrads to try to remember eight arbitrary word-number pairings. For example, they might have to remember that the word vomit was paired with the number four, while the word swim was paired with the number seven. As you might imagine, some of the words, like vomit and rape, were more emotionally arousing than other more neutral words, like swim and dance. And those differences had a dramatic impact on people's memory and how that memory changed over time. About 20 minutes after studying the pairs, people were able to remember about 20% of the numbers associated with words that were not emotionally arousing. The next day, that percentage had dropped to about 12%. And a week later, participants remembered virtually none of the numbers associated with the neutral words. But the researchers found just the opposite for words that were highly arousing. 20 minutes after studying the pairs, the participants remembered about 20% of the numbers associated with words that were emotionally arousing. That's about the same as for the neutral words. But the next day, their memory for those numbers actually got better rather than worse. Now they remembered almost 40% of the numbers. And after a week, their performance was even better. And more recent studies have found similar results. As time passes, the gap between emotional memories and neutral memories grows. And that has led many scientists to hypothesize that emotional arousal strengthens memory consolidation. A little later in the lecture, we'll come back to how that might happen at a neural level. Okay, well, so far, we've seen that emotional memories are typically more vivid than neutral memories. People create flashbulb memories that are extremely detailed and that they remember for a long time. But are those emotional memories accurate? Most people certainly assume that they are, given their vividness and their attention to detail. And if asked to rate their confidence in the accuracy of emotional memories, people inevitably give very high confidence ratings. But one important lesson that we've learned in this course is that our memory often reflects a plausible reconstruction of what we experienced, and that it can be distorted in a variety of ways. Furthermore, we're typically unaware of these distortions in our memory, 
and we assume that we think we remember what actually happened. And it turns out that's also true for emotional memories. For example, consider the Space Shuttle Challenger disaster. On January 28, 1986, the shuttle broke apart 73 seconds into its flight, killing all seven crew members, including a high school teacher named Krista McAuliffe. Many people vividly remember where they were and what they were doing when they first heard about the tragedy. For example, one woman who was a college freshman at the time had this to say. When I first heard about the explosion, I was sitting in my freshman dorm room with my roommate and we were watching TV. It came on a news flash and we were both totally shocked. I was really upset and I went upstairs to talk to a friend of mine. Then I called my parents. This report was given two and a half years after the tragedy, but the woman who shared it claimed to remember it as if it was yesterday. The TV, the terrible news, the call home. She was extremely confident about what had happened, but she was wrong. You see, this same student had been asked to give a similar report the day after the tragedy, and that report was very different. I was in my religion class, and some people walked in and started talking about it. I didn't know any details except that it had exploded and the school teacher's students had all been watching, which I thought was so sad. Then after class, I went to my room and watched the TV program talking about it, and I got all the details from that. Now, presumably the report from the day after the event is a better reflection of what actually happened. But as you can see, it's pretty different from the report the same woman gave two and a half years later. In the later report, she remembered being in her dorm room rather than in her religion class. She also mistakenly remembered learning about the tragedy from a newsflash on TV, when in fact, she had heard people talking about it in her classroom. And these kinds of mistakes aren't unique. In fact, this woman was one of 44 people who were interviewed about the Challenger disaster by Ulrich Neisser and Nicole Harsh at Emory University. They were all students in Professor Neisser's psychology class when the disaster happened. And so he had asked them to fill out a questionnaire about their memory for the event in class the day after it happened. He then contacted them again when they were seniors, and he asked them to fill out a similar questionnaire. The researchers then compared the two reports on seven key attributes, including where they said that they were when they heard the news, what they were doing, who told them. Half the subjects gave conflicting answers for at least five of those seven attributes, and a quarter of them were wrong about all seven. Nevertheless, when asked to rate their confidence in their memory on a scale of one to five, the average rating was 4.17. In fact, 13 of the 44 participants rated their confidence as 5 out of 5. And three of those 13 people had actually misremembered all seven key attributes. Clearly, although emotional memories are vivid and long-lasting, they're subject to the same kinds of distortions as other memories are. Now, most of the time, it's presumably adaptive to form vivid memories for emotionally arousing information. 
Remembering a traumatic event, like a car accident or getting robbed, might help you to avoid similar situations in the future. But in some cases, traumatic memories can become maladaptive and intrusive. For example, victims of post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD for short, often experience intrusive and recurrent flashbacks to previous traumatic events. And those symptoms can persist for an extended period of time, significantly interfering with their daily life. Now, when most people think of PTSD, they think of war veterans whose memories of traumatic battles have become consuming and debilitating. But soldiers aren't the only ones who experience PTSD. Experiences like the sudden, unexpected death of a loved one, or being physically or sexually abused, can also cause PTSD. Of course, it's normal to feel afraid during and after traumatic events, and almost everyone will experience a variety of unpleasant reactions for a period of time. But most people recover from those symptoms naturally, within a month or so. Victims of PTSD don't. They continue to feel extremely stressed and frightened long after the disturbing event, even when they're no longer in any danger. Okay, now let's turn to explanations about how our feelings influence learning and memory. And I'd like to start with a hypothesis that was proposed by J.A. Easterbrook at the University of London. It's called cue utilization theory. Easterbrook argued that emotional arousal tends to restrict our utilization of environmental cues. Put simply, the more emotionally aroused we get, the more we restrict our focus of attention to only the most relevant environmental features. And focusing attention can often improve learning. For example, imagine that you're playing a friendly game of Scrabble with a bunch of family members after dinner. Now, I realize that some families take Scrabble extremely seriously, but for the sake of argument, please assume that this is a very low-stakes game with absolutely no pressure. Maybe some small children are playing and no one's worrying too much about using all their letters or getting a word on that triple word score tile. Now, that kind of situation would be low on the emotion arousal scale. And so cue utilization theory would predict that your attention wouldn't be focused exclusively on the Scrabble board. For example, you might also be telling a joke or telling a relative about a recent trip or trying to keep track of the football game on TV out of the corner of your eye. But if your attention is all over the place, then naturally you're not going to encode as much information about the Scrabble game and you're probably not going to remember it that well. But now let's assume that you're a competitive Scrabble player and that you're playing in a sanctioned championship. Naturally, you're nervous and you want to do your best. Now that situation would be relatively high on the emotion arousal scale. And so cue utilization theory would predict that you would focus your attention on the most relevant environmental features and that you would ignore everything else. 
So in this case, that means that you're going to focus on the Scrabble board and try to ignore the clock on the wall, the people entering or exiting the room, and the sound of the ceiling fan. And so you're likely to encode a lot of information about the game that you're playing. And you'll probably remember a lot about it. Now, one of the best pieces of evidence for this cue utilization theory is the so-called weapon focus effect. This is the finding that when people encounter someone with a weapon, they tend to focus most of their attention on the weapon itself. And as a result, they often remember a lot about the weapon, but not so much about the perpetrator or other features of the event. For example, some studies have monitored people's eye movements while they view pictures that contain weapons versus pictures that don't. And as you might expect, people tend to spend a lot more time looking at weapons compared with more neutral stimuli. In another study, participants were presented with a sequence of pictures of a customer going through a line at a fast food restaurant. Half the participants saw some pictures in which the customer pointed a gun at the cashier, who then handed over some money. The other half saw the customer hand the cashier a check, and then the cashier also handed over some money. The pictures for the two groups were identical, except for the change from a gun to a check. And the researchers found that participants in the weapon condition spent more time looking at the gun, while participants in the check condition spent more time looking at other features, like the customer's appearance. And sure enough, the people in the check condition remembered the customer better than the people in the gun condition, just as Q utilization theory would predict. And this result also demonstrates that stress and emotional arousal don't always improve every aspect of memory. In this case, the stressful gun condition actually produced worse memory for the customer than the unstressful check condition did. It all depends on what you pay attention to. Stress tends to make you narrow your focus of attention to the most central, important information. And memory for that information is often improved but memory for other information is typically impaired, precisely because you ignored it. Okay, well, so far we've been talking about short-term, acute emotions and stress. And we've seen that short-term feelings tend to make memories stronger and more vivid, although they don't protect memory from subsequent distortion. But what about long-term, chronic stress? Does that also strengthen memory? Well, to answer that question, Victoria Lewin at Hunter College, along with Bruce McCune and two other colleagues, measured memory performance in rats that had been exposed to chronic stress for three weeks, and they also measured the memory performance of rats that had not been stressed at all. The animals were placed in what's called a radial arm maze. So imagine eight narrow tracks called arms extending out from a central platform, kind of like the spokes in a wheel. At the end of each arm is a small well containing a peanut. The rat is placed in the middle and has to walk out to the end of each arm to get all eight peanuts. Now, 
you don't want to walk down the same arm twice because the peanut won't be there anymore. So that would be considered a mistake, while walking down an arm that you haven't visited before would be considered a correct answer. So Dr. Lewin and her colleagues compared the memory performance of rats who had been stressed for three weeks with the memory performance of rats who hadn't. And what do you think they found? In this case, stress impaired memory performance. The chronically stressed rats made more mistakes, and they made them earlier than the control rats. So, while short-term stress often strengthens memory, long-term chronic stress seems to undermine it. Now, let's turn to the biological basis of these behavioral effects. What's going on in the body and the brain when we experience intense emotions? And how does it affect learning and memory? When we're stressed or we experience intense emotions, we activate a biological system called the HPA axis. The HPA axis includes the hypothalamus, the pituitary gland, and the adrenal glands. That's why it's called the HPA axis. And when the HPA axis is activated, the end result is the release of stress hormones in the bloodstream, which in turn trigger a fight or flight response. Now, you're undoubtedly familiar with what the fight or flight response feels like. You get a jolt of adrenaline, your mouth goes dry, your pupils dilate, your sensations are heightened, and your heart starts to race. And all of these changes are caused by the stress hormones in the bloodstream. Now, given that short-term stress often strengthens memory, it's natural to ask whether it's those stress hormones that produce that effect. Well, to investigate that question, Larry Cahill and Jim McGaw at the University of California at Irvine, along with two other colleagues, used a drug called propranolol to block the effect of the stress hormones. And then they examined the effects on memory. So stress hormones work by attaching to special receptor molecules throughout the body and turning those receptors on. And when those receptors get turned on, that's what triggers the fight or flight response. Propranolol attaches to those same receptors that the stress hormones do, but it doesn't turn them on. It just prevents the stress hormones from turning them on. So, if the activity of stress hormones is critical to enhancing emotional memory, then emotional memory should not be enhanced in people who take propranolol. Cahill and his colleagues tested this idea by presenting people with two stories to remember. One was an emotional story about a boy walking with his mom, getting hit by a car, and being rushed to the hospital to be treated for life-threatening injuries. The other story was neutral. The boy and his mom walk to the hospital and observe a simulated emergency response. Now, some people took propranolol before listening to the story, while other people took a placebo. A week later, everyone's memory was tested, and the results in the placebo group were compared to the results in the drug group. 
The placebo group showed the standard emotional enhancement effect. They had a significantly stronger memory for the emotional story compared with the neutral story. But the drug group didn't. Their memory for the emotional story was no stronger than their memory for the neutral story. Now, these results suggest that the release of stress hormones is what causes emotional memories to be vivid and strong. There's also evidence that chronic exposure to stress hormones over time can lead to changes in the brain itself that undermine learning and memory. For example, rats that receive regular injections of stress hormones end up exhibiting worse memory performance over time. And the same is true in human beings. For example, certain asthma and anti-inflammatory medications actually increase stress hormone levels. And patients taking these medications sometimes exhibit learning and memory deficits. In rare cases, these drugs can even produce a condition called steroid dementia that's sometimes mistaken for Alzheimer's disease. Now, at the cellular level, the dendrites of neurons, which serve as the input branches, have actually been found to shrivel and retract after chronic exposure to stress hormones. There's also evidence that prolonged stress inhibits the birth of new neurons in the hippocampus, which, as we know, plays a crucial role in learning and memory. So, hormones play an important role in how stress and emotion affect memory. But what's going on in the brain? Are there specific areas of the brain that play a crucial role in learning and remembering emotional information? The answer is yes. And a lot of the evidence has come from studies of what's called classical fear conditioning. Now, we've encountered classical conditioning before in this course. This was the type of learning that Ivan Pavlov studied in his dogs. After repeatedly presenting a conditioned stimulus, like a bell, with an unconditioned stimulus like food, Pavlov's dogs learned an association between the bell and the food, and they would therefore salivate as soon as they heard the bell. Well, fear conditioning is very similar, except that the unconditioned stimulus is something unpleasant, like a shock instead of food. For example, you might condition a rat so that it associates the sound of a tone with getting a shock. After learning, the rat will exhibit a stereotypical fear response when it hears the tone. It will freeze in place and its breathing and heart rate will increase. Now, a number of studies have examined the neural basis of this kind of fear conditioning. And they've repeatedly identified a neural structure called the amygdala as being particularly important. Now, the amygdala is an almond-shaped brain region. It's just in front of the hippocampus in the medial temporal lobes. It's known to play an important role in the processing of emotion, although its role in fear and fear conditioning has been studied the most. For example, rats and other animals that have lesions to the amygdala don't exhibit normal fear conditioning. After such lesions, these animals don't learn the standard association between a conditioned stimulus, like a tone, 
and a fearful, unconditioned stimulus like a shock. Furthermore, do you remember our discussion of long-term potentiation? The long-term strengthening of synaptic connections that's thought to play a crucial role in many types of learning? Well, it turns out that administering drugs that block long-term potentiation in the amygdala also prevent fear conditioning. These studies demonstrate that the amygdala plays a crucial role in emotional learning. And other studies have shown that it's also critical for the consolidation of emotional memories. For example, injecting stress hormones into the amygdala immediately after learning has been shown to produce strong, longer-lasting memories. Conversely, blocking the effect of stress hormones in the amygdala impairs this kind of consolidation. Similar results have also been observed in human beings who have damage to the amygdala as a result of stroke or brain injury. For example, these patients don't show the normal narrowing of attention that emotion tends to produce in people without brain damage. And they also don't exhibit the same memory advantage for emotional information compared with neutral information that most people show, either initially or after a delay. So the bottom line is that many of the effects that emotion and stress have on learning and memory seem to depend on your amygdala. So don't leave home without it. Okay, let's finish up. In this lecture, we examined the effects of stress and emotion on learning and memory. We saw that short-term emotional arousal can make memories stronger and more vivid, but that long-term chronic stress can actually undermine our learning. We also saw that stress hormones and the amygdala are both playing a crucial role at a biological level. In our next lecture, I want to turn to a very different factor that can also have a dramatic effect on learning. Sleep. Recent studies have found that there's a lot more going on in our brains when we're asleep than was previously thought. And a lot of what's going on is critical for learning and memory. In fact, many scientists believe that memory consolidation may be one of the primary functions of sleep. See you then.